You're listening to the Houston Music Podcast, the show where I have conversations with industry-leading sound designers, musical artists, producers, beat makers, engineers, and manufacturers, all of whom are heavily connected to the audio world that surrounds us. And in this episode, I have a great conversation with someone whose career started out a little bit different than where he is today. We played in front of like like all of our friends and seven labels and we... To writing and composing music for television and commercials, to recording brass, clarinets, and turning those into some of the darkest, coolest grooves on Instagram. And I'm not a purist with gear. Like I, I use hardware synths, soft synths, modular synths, um, you know, everything, analog, digital, like I'm definitely not a purist. But there's always... So join me in my conversation with Snakes of Russia. Houston, we have a problem. I wanted to talk to you about something because we've chatted about this a little bit. There is a period before you really settled into where you were playing live and doing the band thing pretty religiously. And then there was a point where studio world, producer world, writing, composition... Did that just make a gradual shift or was it just a, one of those epiphanies? It was, so I grew up playing um, in bands and, and, you know, since I was 13, 14 years old and, and, you know, did a lot of recordings and I, I've always really enjoyed myself in the recording studio atmosphere. Um, and I've always had crazy, crazy ideas about, you know, the, the production process without realizing at the time it was, it was production. And, and I've always wanted to try um, all these, you know, crazy ideas like, Hey, let's, let's put the amp outside and record it from in here and things like that. But the, the number one thing that, that always echoed every single one of those sessions was we'd always run out of time and you'd always, you know, it'd be like, it'd be like, you know, the, the, the ponytail guy studio in his basement, you know, growing up <laughs> that, that nothing against people with ponytails, but um, it would, you know, we'd never have enough time. You pay by the hour. And then like, I'd really wanted to try this really cool idea with a certain part. So just the frustration of never being able to experiment growing up in those bands kind of let put that idea in the back of my head that, you know, Hey, one day, I'm going to be able to try anything I want in the recording studio. And then that kind of idea sat in the back of my mind as I, as I went from drums to eventually like singing in bands and fronting bands. And then, I mean, recording wasn't even, absolutely was not on the, uh, in the horizon at all. I wanted to just front bands and be, you know, this rock guy and um, moved to LA to do that and put together a band really, really fast. And, kind of everything kind of unfolded and manifested, you know, with everything I kind of wanted to do in that world really, really quickly after moving here. And, um, and then just as fast went down really fast. Um, and then somewhere in that time, um, you know, we were looking, this band that I was doing, you know, we were kind of, we were told to put a, a list together of, of these producers we wanted to work with. And I was always really into the way records sounded in production. Um, so, I had a list and, and it was great, you know, thinking about that and that 
got me to think about production again in that I want, you know, this is a rock band, but I want it to sound like, I don't know, like a Flaming Lips record where everything sounds really unique and cool and guitars don't sound like guitars. And so I think when that band kind of fizzled, I, I bought, I bought Pro Tools and I bought some recording gear and I started recording the next band that I was doing. And then I recorded the next, you know, a friend's band and then another friend's band. Were you, and then, were you producing them? Yeah. Producing them and, and, and mixing them. Yeah. And it was just, it was bands for a long time. And then, um, and then for a year I upgraded my, my pro tools rig, um, to an HD rig. Um, and then I, I, for a year, I just, I just, if I, if I even found a band remotely interesting, I just recorded it for like beer and burritos. And then, um, just by doing that, I just got, I got, I, I guess I just kind of got my chops up and, and got really used to mixing, you know, live instrumentation, mixing drum kits, you know. And then, so that's kind of how, how the transition really happened for me to being comfortable in a studio atmosphere. And then along the way, you know, getting to work in some great rooms um, and, um, you know, some large format consoles and stuff and being able to do that quite a bit. And then it kind of just worked out into me making my own music and then, um, you know, where I am to where I am today. And it was kind of a, it, it wasn't maybe the most logical, I, I looking back, I, I can't, I would never realize that this is where I'm going to be. I wanted to just be living out of a van and <laughs> like, you know, sleeping on people's floors probably still. Is it ever, is, is it ever logical? Never. <laughs> it's not. Never. I want to, I want to touch on, a couple of things of that on that journey. When you said you were yeah. working in some studios, you got to a point where you were going into some nicer, larger format console type scenarios. Were you producing those records or co-producing those records at that time? Yeah, it was. It was mostly the bands that I was involved in at the time. So the ear was had taken you taken an ear to producing. It sounds like from if I, if I'm hearing this right, you were in a band that was. I guess you had guys had some kind of production deal. Or the yeah. first one, the first major deal where they got where you were told to like make a list, of, yeah. right? And so, but then that kind of fizzled. Something happened. Yeah, I can tell you what happened. <laughs> I mean, this was this was so this was when I first moved to LA, and and major labels were were still like a thing, you know. And you would, you know, we we went and um, I met someone really fast after moving here, and we went and made this. Like record at the time, this was called a demo. Like that's what it was. It was just it was something that we made. You know, um, we found a studio um, and made made a recording, and that and then, you know, we that made the rounds and we we sat and with all these labels and stuff and then got some demo money. Um, what year was that? That was two thousand and one, like two thousand to two thousand and one. Okay, because I asked that because there is a timeline for, for folks listening where labels did still exist, especially in the rock and AOR type format. Yep. And then there was a time that they didn't. And that's why I was curious mm -hmm. if it was pushing toward that 04 to 06 where Universal, there was collapse and mergers and all the, you know, 50,000 but dollar budgets started turning into 10,000, started turning into, yeah. so yeah. So you're in it, you're actually in the thick of it. 2000, yeah. 2001 yeah. is like, there's that whole, there's Disturbed and there's like all these yeah. Linkin Park and like all these yep. bands that were, oh, we yeah. want to, if they can do it, 
Yeah, Let's just yeah. sign it to a label and we'll do it too. So yeah, so you're in you're in the thick of it. So yeah, t- tell me the yeah. And as a you know, and we were like a guitar rock band, you know. Yeah. So it was like Swerve Driver yeah. or like yeah. um, um, a noisier version of Smashing Pumpkins with you know. Um, so yeah. that was that was basically the gist. And then and then um, we saw a lot of labels and and and. And when I'm saying everything kind of manifested itself that quickly for me, I was in LA less than a year and we were um, sitting in all these meetings and it was just, it was crazy. It was insane. And on the strength of three songs and um, every label seemed to say the same thing. And they said, we love it comes down to the live show that you know, when live show, when that was still a thing, when that was still a big deal. Um, So, um, what we did wrong was we just, we, we should have, we should have had the foresight to be cool. We'll see you in like uh, two years. And they just went and played, 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 played. And we didn't, we, we, and then we showcased, um, oh, that, that word. awful, that word. I hate it. That I can't word, even showcase. say it. Yes. That's it. Yeah, man. You went and got your clothes and your, your backline amp all tweaked out and dude, yeah it was like that word it's just saying it leaving my lips just makes me like makes me angry um anyway we played in front of like like all of our friends and seven labels and we sucked why did it suck though we were you know we were like it was a recording that we made and the recording, you know, we weren't a live band yet, you know? Well, there you go. You waited till just then to say what I was curious about. You weren't a live band. Yeah. We were three months. Like what man at three months is like, you know? um, And the funny thing is like nine months later, we were like, you know, like melting faces. So um, that, yeah. So that's the, the crash and burn story. So I learned so much from that time and man i mean it sucked it was it was like it was it was really like to you know it was horrible and yeah it is rejection is but like rejection because of something we we could have prevented you know Um, but it's rejection coming from multiple sources yep in that business i was in the production game back then and Mm -hmm. you know working with different labels and a and r folks and when that rejection hits a band, it's coming. When that, that's why my my ears perked up and my head went back when you said showcase too. I was just like, oh my god, Dude. I haven't heard that word in so long. Those are so because it either flies or it doesn't fly. And then the literally like the night of the phone calls start. Yeah, like yeah, I heard it. I heard it didn't go well. Or oh yeah, man, they man, crushed yeah. it. And you're like, yep. oh yeah, it's like it's either yes or no. And then nothing. Dude. They they go to the Nashville guy or they go to the New York yeah. guy or they go to the other band that's in the other region that the other rep. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It was the stands in the back of the room with the arms folded and yeah. And then, you, you know, and, and I think the, the next few, the next few years, like there'd be ups and downs. And, and then I'm, but I remember speaking of showcase, we did one um, that was an actual showcase where it was one of those situations where, where you, we're playing in a club that's a normal functioning nightclub, but we're playing on a Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m., probably the most un-rock and roll time to be playing rock music. What and the? in front of, like, three people, and those are they're all, like, suits. And it was just the worst. It's the worst scenario to present live, loud rock music. It's or any, To me, any music besides music for children. It's just, it, it was horrible. That, that experience. I don't think I've ever heard of that. 
actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, wow. it was awful. Like, I'm like, how am I, you know, now here today, it's a wonderful story to reflect on. It's poker chat. You know, it's just like, yeah. what were we, but in the, it's like, how did we get here? I don't know how we got here, but that was messed up, man. Like yeah, that's, man. that's how I take that. Cause I, I was not on stage, but I was in those scenarios because I would produce these bands I was the guy that did the stuff before it got to the mainline producer, but it was cool because there were budgets and I was pretty comfortable with it. I, I wasn't trying to fake the funk thinking that I was going to produce the marvelous three in Atlanta. I knew that Butch was going to do that stuff, but mm -hmm. I could produce the bands leading up to that to get the demo. Right. You know, in that 97, 98 to like 2002 range, there was tons of stuff going on. Yeah. And it was awesome. Yeah. And I was working in different studios that were fantastic facilities. And I had my little suite set up and Rick Beato's down the hall in one room, Dave Cobb's down the hall in another room. I mean, it was vibrant. Awesome. You man. know, we, and we know where those guys are now. It was great. And so yeah. it, what, but what I remember vividly was going, getting the call saying, Hey, we've, we're doing the Warner showcase Friday at, you know, Smith's old bar. There's always, there's always the place, you know, and always in the back of your mind. You were, is a, you're like, oh my God, they're going to try and sound like the record, man. I don't know what they're going to sound like. And you'd st I'd start stressing out, but I would go to the thing and they'd hang and they would do their play the three song set and it would either fly or it wouldn't fly. Yeah. And it was always the same people. Always. The same, the same rep dude, the same girl that works for the label. That's the rep of the other, the other guy that's the <laughs> other rep and people all stand yeah. in their little positions. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of yeah. empty. You could, you always could judge the the vibe by if you could hear like the air conditioning, you know, like if yeah. what's, what's over <laughs> instead of people, like their showcase, and then their showcase, like. But yeah, yeah, it's kind of depressing. Yeah, the, it's actually yeah, the, it's kind of depressing to think about, like looking back on that. I but I was on, the, I'm out front, man. Yeah, I'm not you. Yeah, I never played. I mean, I played two live gigs in my whole life, and I think they were both when I was in eighth grade. Right. Like, yeah, I'll get up on stage and present and put a mic yeah. on and talk all day. Never been in a band situation. It's, it's, I've always been right. behind the glass. Like, that's interesting. Crazy. Man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, wow. Yeah. I, I do not, I do not miss anything about that. Like, whatsoever. I'm so glad that I went through that. Yes. Because, you know, as just as a, you know, um, I work with a lot of younger, you know, people, you know, production wise. And, and mm -hmm. it's just, you know, I tell them the, the stories and, and yeah, it's, I'm glad I went through it, but yeah. I would not want to do it again. Yeah. Well, I think it also illustrates really well when you hear these kinds of stories, it puts a realism on the fact that you get your 10,000 hours in this business and it really does apply whether you're a yeah. hip hop producer or you're a rock and roll vocalist that's turned into a multi award-winning composer or you write songs for television yeah or your producer that's you know yeah. yeah producers too someone brought up an interesting point on a recent episode i had that they've always found that drummers yeah seem to be more get more into producing and making records than any other musician yeah i yeah and i thought I just listen to that we yeah. talked about it for a second yeah, yeah. I don't know, who was that? Was that Mike, Mike, Michael Stein or somebody? I, I want to say it was the, it was the, yeah. It resonated, and I thought, and I kind of think about that every once in a while. I'm like, I guess that's a thing, you know. And it's like so many people I talked to on the show started out on drums. 
Yeah. And there's different stories about how he got into them or whatever, but that I just think that's interesting. Like producing could just write books on it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think a lot of people have an understanding of what a, yeah. what a music producer is today, as opposed to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly beyond that. Yeah. But your story is really interesting because, and I want to still, I want to dive back a little further too, like sure. know, kind of how things started when you were younger yeah. musically. But that's a true definition of of taking your lumps, getting your ten thousand hours, going through really hard relationship type situations that yeah. fizzled, that went awry, but you kept grinding and you I mean, you're in a, a really hard place to do that too. Yeah. You know, in Southern California. And it's uh but you did it. Yeah. But it's also still humbling to hear you say, where did, how did all that happen? Yeah. I love giving that information back to folks that are new to this business, new to this craft, yeah. but also new just because they're younger. When you right. go to a community college or you go to a university and you talk to a class or you go to yeah. South by Southwest or something and you're up there doing a panel, but you're connecting with a demographic that's just like, whoa, you really did that. Yeah, yeah, dude really did that <laughs> yeah times yeah. 300 yeah 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 man have you always been a songwriter i just def um like i guess without knowing it <laughs> um i defaulted you know as fronting bands you know when you when you make bands when you're younger it's just it always it always seems to happen that the, the singer just because he's singing the words by default is writing the melodies and, and lyrics and you know making music in a rehearsal room or a garage and writing on the spot with your friends it just kind of defaults to that um and it's always been that case for me it's always been we just jam out a song and i would and i would you know come up with some stuff on the spot and write it so when i entered into the into the environment of you know more or less professional songwriting and meeting someone and then a half hour later writing a song from scratch with them in four hours it, it i just kind of took to it right right away it really wasn't it's not a very it wasn't a very foreign concept to me um even though it's completely different than getting in a garage and writing with you know uh, your friends um and i don't know why i don't know how i took to it so so fast and maybe it was kind of always in there for me to write that way um that so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, yes, I felt like it was always kind of inside me. And, and, and then by doing it in practice um, a few times a week for a few years, you know, mm -hmm. I got just really fast at it and really good. And, and did it come a little later? It wasn't like you were yes. 10, 12, 14 years old writing. No, 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 books. no, no, no. What were you playing to write songs like keys, guitar, drums, or just a pen and paper? with someone who was playing a guitar, like right, right. knowing your music and as melodic and as textural and as rhythmic bass, which we're going to get into in a minute, but right. how did that work? Because I know you play keys. Basically the timeline went, I got in, I was into drums first. I, um, I, it was like Christmas one year and, oh yeah. And it was like, how old were you? 13. So it was, it was drum kit or computer. And and I actually that year I chose a computer, <laughs> which which is funny because I make so much it, it ties in now the computer that computer choice. But then like 
um, a year later, I got a drum kit. And then it was drums, 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 heavy metal drums for years. And until I discovered samplers and electronic music, and then I got a sampler. Um, what was it? In, in Sonic's EPS 16 Plus. It's right behind me. I yeah, still have yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and then it just opened the door for all of this music that I could make um, by by putting together sampling, like by sampling things and putting those together and MIDI and, and, and all that kind of made it that I was mostly a drummer, but I could construct things out of, I, you know, just other things essentially by sampling and, and making, you know, horrible, horrible records at the time, but learning how to do that. And um, that kind of put the groundwork into, like, I don't think I'm, I'm not great at, any instrument but i think the one thing through all of this that i can do well is i can get us from a to b so if we want like hey we need a track that sounds like it sounds that should go in in front of this picture or or we want a track that sounds sad but also energetic or whatever adjectives i can get us there so i think it took a long time for me to realize what that talent was and what my my real strength was it was it's that it's just basically being able to <laughs> you give me the information and i'll assemble the information uh, yeah. in the way it should and and i think you know that's that's an important thing i think for producers to be able to do um but it took a really long time for me to figure out that hey maybe that's the thing i'm good at but to answer your question i was yeah originally drums but then once i got a sampler and electronic music and some keyboards and stuff and and then i just kind of hacked my way into making tracks it started there and then I started um, writing and then, you know, dabbling in guitar and stuff and, and just kind of playing and making songs mm-hmm. on my own on acoustic guitar. And, and then, but mostly it was writing for the bands I was in. And, and like I mentioned before, just in a garage, just me grabbing the mic. You so know? you'd form, you'd come up with chord, you'd form chords with guitar and keys and, yeah. and that, that sort of structure. Do you read music today? Um, no. No, I don't. Poor hand chart type stuff or just like somebody throws you? Well, the funny funny thing was, was I really had a strong desire to go back and just like, I took, I took theory in college and, and I mean, it was pointless for me. I didn't want to learn anything. I just wanted to play drums. So I didn't, I didn't, I took theory and it was just might as well had not taken theory. Um, And about two years ago, I went, I decided that I want to go back in and I want to learn everything that I that I should know should air quotes and I did and I took a theory class but it was it was a it was a winter it was a winter um semester so everything was it was like it was like three months of school inside of six weeks and it was not what I it was the pace was fine and I could have just dealt with it but i i don't want to go to to get a degree i want to go because i want to relearn that information 
And it was just so fast. Like we literally spent one day on time signature. One day. That's it. Three hours. And so I, I didn't finish. I don't. Everything I do is kind of by ear and just and just like hearing something and, and understanding like, OK, um, yeah. I think I know enough to, to kind of make that like, you, you know, it, just a lot of the stuff I do with my day job with music. It's a lot of references, like all the time someone right. sends in, you know, cop- the whole copy the temp thing. Um, just someone sends in a piece of music and like, hey, we need something that kind of sounds like this. Did you grow up? Was music in musicology as a sense? Was, yeah. was that in the house? Um, you know what I mean? Were you an album kid? Were you like mad, oh, crazy, I mean, living in a music store kind of record I mean, store? Oh, abs- absolutely. But my parents weren't. My parents weren't. So the household wasn't because no. it's it's no. always fascinating to me. It's almost kind of like a pure pitch, perfect pitch, ear training kind of thing. When you have right. someone like yourself that's able to have an agency or a production company say, mm-hmm. "We need something that's like this, but different like this," and you're able to in your head kind of go, right. "Okay." Well, I'll tell you why. I think why that is, and it relates to your question. No, my parents didn't have, like, they had, like, two records in the entire house. Like, they were not music people. No, they weren't. <laughs> those well, those were two amazing records, obviously. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so I don't know where the, it just came, it came from, but when I was a kid and I discovered music, I mean, I just went crazy about music. And growing up being a heavy metal kid, I felt really put the foundation in to be a fanatic about music. I was a fanatic about heavy metal. And I would argue that if you take the same kid that is grew up listening to heavy metal and just someone that's like a casual pop radio music listener, the heavy metal kid is just going to be the the kid that's crazy about music because it just instills this, this thing. Um, So that, that went over to every other style of music I could get my hands on. And at the time I was studying drumming. So my drum teacher would recommend all these different types of music and, and all these records that I would never had ever bought on my own, but because he recommended them and he, and he said, Hey, this will help with your playing. It'll help you just apply this style into what you're doing. And I'm so thankful for that. Sure. So that went into just me being, crazy about music and then just crazy about all this different kind of music and and i mean i still am as nuts about music as i was as when i was 17 and i think to answer your question about how that helps the reference thing it's i have so much music in my subconscious like so i i literally say when i'm working on something (laughs) i need a, a good i need something that sounds like a guitar that sounds like something Sonic Youth would do on Goop. Like that's I just pull f- always from like records because that's that's what my that's that's what you know that's what music that's what I don't yeah. have years and years of theory, but I have years and years of just records and, I can and just, relate to I'm that. subconsciously yeah. probably stealing like <laughs> all these ideas. It's a yeah. very very similar. Yeah, I can yeah. definitely relate to that. Like thinking two to three times of building blocks, but it, it's always a reference to a specific sound from a certain passage yep. on a certain record. Absolutely. But my theory and harmony experience class cool. was in high school. Yeah. My friend and I, Scott Rouse. Scott Rouse went on to produce mega records in Nashville. And um, oh. 
and Mr. Wade was our theory teacher. And right. I think he did band. I think he did marching band, but he had some other role. Like he was like a social studies teacher or something, but he, he was a, he was an asshole and he would like, I would go in and sit there and he would just do all this rant. It was like, he played favorites with the kids that were already in band, like right. in the marching yeah. band, the kid that played yeah. the Sousa, the kid that was on timpani, the kid that was on clarinet and or whatever. And I wasn't, I was in a rock band. Scott was in a rock band. There was this other kid, Clark, who played bass in a rock band. So we were the, and we weren't really cut-ups. He just didn't like us. Right. I would, I hated it. Wow. And I always look back on that. I've always wanted to just, I kid with my friend Scott, you know, we always like, yeah, we should just do a compilation and send it to Mr. Wade. <laughs> I think he actually wrote a song. And what's funny is Scott went to Berkeley. Wow. After high school. Yeah. Got accepted to Berkeley, went up and applied and he got it. He got into Berkeley. So maybe it was a teacher thing too, but I just, uh, I share that sensibility and that approach that yeah. if you let me hear it and you explain it, I will, I will produce it to the best of my ability without, I mean, I can read a chart. Yeah. I can't write one. Right. Right. But that's where you, and I've, I've talked about this on other podcasts too. That's where you surround yourself with the right people. Sure. Yeah. You and I have talked about that where you, you yeah. surround yourself with the right mixer. You surround yourself with an arranger for strings and horns and brass or yeah. whatever you got to do. You make that call because you know yeah. that within the budget of everything, the sound is the ultimate. It's it's what has to result in a very high level. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's yeah. you know, you and I could go back and forth on this, I'm sure, forever. There's all those scenarios at one in the morning where you're just like, I'm not gonna arrange these strings, man. I need to get yeah, I need to get Eddie to do this. Do, 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 hey man. Right. They need to turn your ear on something. I'm going to send you this. And they're like, cool, man. And they just do what they do. And it's so amazing. And they send you back like everything's in Sibelius or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the difference. That's what makes a great producer to me is somebody that, I mean, didn't Prince, he went, I mean, he hired, didn't he have someone do his strings? I think he did. I think his strings and horns were like the only thing I heard that he didn't do. And that's Prince. I, what I was thinking, you asked that question. I started thinking like outside of like the Paisley family. Yeah. He had like Dr. Fink and those dudes, those dudes were super qualified. And that's Prince. Like that's Prince. That is. So that should tell you something. Yeah. It's just like any other, you know, just higher talented people (laughs) around you. Like that's, that's what to me makes a good producer is, is, you know, Hey, if I can't do this to the way it needs to be done to make a product that is going to be great, I'm going to hire someone to do that. You know, it's like the mastering paradigm too. Just literally probably two days ago, I had a conversation with somebody that was the, it was like, how, how good is isotope? I can't quite figure it out. And, and I had this conversation with this person about the mastering process of like, you have to let it go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in 2020, yeah. there is someone in the, your region where you live, who's really good at their craft of mastering, find that person yeah, and let them do what they do. That's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought that up because people ask me about mastering all the time. I have my stuff mastered by a mastering engineer, but most of the reason is to just get it out of my ear like get it off my ears yeah. and give it you know this it starts with me and i and, and i every step of the process so i think when people ask me my opinion about about mastering i'm like just that alone like to set like my process is when i'm nearing completion i set a mastering date that's a hard deadline and i have to finish oh, wow. yeah, um, that's, yeah cool. that's what i do it's it's 
it, so it's so many it's it holds so many purposes to me mastering but i'm a big proponent of mastering yeah <laughs> so yeah for a few reasons but there, especially it, that one it's hard to uh quantify it too just the, that role yeah. the technicalities what it is the ears how old is the person how many how much have they done like it's so yeah. what a trippy profession that is it's crazy right and yeah. they just do it man and that certainly look, yeah. there are tools that are fantastic and a lot of the great ones use the same tools that we have in our plug-in browser but there's just something about how they work yeah yeah i like that too you get it as closure you get it off your plate yeah i haven't been in a situation where i'm churning stuff out like like you in in a few years but yeah there was a time where that was a, that was the thing man yeah you go over and you know you're going to be there for two hours and yeah yeah they just do what they do and they they'll ask you the little questions you know yeah. and you're hoping there's not a mistake or whatever and something yeah you're basically yeah i my guy's in san francisco so i don't i i mostly don't go but i did i've done a few times but mostly to kind of just witness what he's doing because he's great um his name is justin weiss he he uh works at a studio called Trackworks. this is his place mm -hmm. and i'm just like i have to come once just to see what you're doing and it's it's he's like a it's it all analog chain throws my stuff to tape and, and back and mm -hmm. it's it's just great it's fantastic um so it was really fun to go once and just to watch and you know make make sure he wasn't just throwing it into ozone <laughs> i've got i've got this in my in my notes and stuff i want to talk talk to me about tape oh yeah how big of a process is tape in your your world for your music it's kind of as big as i want it to be for that i don't know track um Essentially, I came up a little bit on tape. You know, the first couple of records I made were on tape, and then and then moved on to ADAT soon after. Oh boy! And then obviously just Pro Tools. So it's always had this special place in my in my heart. But lately, but then that went to um, doing drums and bass to tape, like with rock bands that I did, like let's do drums and bass to tape because it'll just be huge. And it was, it was great, you know, the right room and and the right, you know, absolutely chain, the right mics and chains and, and tape is just monstrous, you know, for drums. So it always held that kind of thing to me until I had a friend give me an old tape machine that they weren't using. So uh, a quarter inch, and then I just hooked it up and put it into my bay and I started just bouncing stuff over to it and slamming it way harder than I should have on purpose. And I'm just like, man, this just sounds amazing. And I mean, everything, drums and synths and, and arps and everything. And then I realized, you know, I mean, and this trick has obviously been done countless times, but just slowing things down. Like everything that you record the tape and slow down half speed is going to sound better than it did when you put it in. So I started purposely writing stuff that was like twice as fast just so I can put it onto tape and dump and slow it down. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So that so a lot of times I'll just I'll just throw something over to the tape and then bring it right back in and line it back up. And and sometimes it works. Sometimes it's just a little bit of something. Um, sometimes yeah. it doesn't work because it's either just too a little too much but a lot of times i'll use it for that process like speeding up and slowing things down and just you know even cassette 
So here, here's the thing. You, you brought something, you slipped something in there. I think it's really important that yeah. you got it on the bay. So you've, oh. you've got it ready on your patch bay. So it's like, if it enters your brain, it's not a, oh, okay. So yeah. I got to get up and I got to take the back of the thing yeah. with the RCAs. And I'm well, yeah, I mean, dude, it was that for years. Like at my old studio space, like everything was I had like was everything was if something was in the other room, right? If I have to get up and find plug something in, mm -hmm. the idea is already gone. Like I'm not going to do it. So right. when I moved in to this new space, I wanted to make sure that I took the time that I set up every piece of gear in here. Um, it's all in the bay. It's all in the bay. My yeah. template has everything. I can send MIDI to any synth in this room, mm -hmm. and there's audio. It literally takes me 15 seconds to set up. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. That's made all the difference. Made all it's it's the difference of me experimenting so much more. And I recommend that to anyone. Like just have it ready to go. If it's not in front of you, ready to go at all times, you, you're probably not going to use it. <laughs> Isn't it interesting too, man? Because we all had that first experience. I remember. I th I think I w had a couple of false starts with patch bays because I think that there's this common misconception about really what it is. Yeah. And when you have the, whether it's just sitting in the studio talking to someone that's contemplating it or it's like a mystery thing. Yeah. And then it's like a light bulb moment. It goes off and then people are like, oh my God, yeah. I've got everything on the bay. Yeah. It's all molted yeah. and I can reamp and some. And I, it's like, it's like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, the hardest part is just like finding a way to label it. Like I still, it's so satisfying I, though when you get it. I done. still, dude, I still don't have my patch base labeled. They're not labeled. Um, no, you're not supposed to. There's like I have, a, I have, a, I have like a no, because you know a phone, a note in my iPhone that has my patch bay on it, and I have to pull it up whenever I want to make a new patch on it. Um, I've even bought like the brother P Touch labels, but they're the wrong yeah. size. And you know what it is? I've tried to label my patch bays for years. Still, you know what not, that is? You know, that is a testimonial to someone who works all the time yeah totally and it's a secret yeah. sort of a secret handshake language it's like <laughs> if your patch bay is not labeled or very minimal mm -hmm. in its labeling but is robust in cables and patch points you never leave your studio yeah you're, you're a work yeah. you're a studio dog you don't yeah dude. you just know now someone's going to come in they're like uh where's the 707 kick you're like uh three overs uh third row from the bottom right from the bottom yeah. or the top or what? Two down? No, dude, I got it here. You put it in. Right. Like, wow, that's cool. That yeah. sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a bay, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, the space echo is always an 18. So that's, that's really like almost everything I do. I just dump through the space echo. So do you have another place that you work to or is every, is your whole world sort of ensconced in your own personal studio? I had, um, I moved my studio back home a year ago. But before that, I had a studio space that had two small rooms and um, and a little bigger room for a live room. But I was it was at the point where I was transitioning into not doing many band records at all. So I felt like I didn't need that much space to do any live recordings. If I need to track drums, there's like a bunch of rooms in town that I'll go and I, I can just like yeah. go in, work, wash my hands. Dip. It's a great luxury to have, too. It's, a, it's just nice to know that. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. Before this, like two places ago, I had this guest house that was like the back of a property. It was the best scenario. I had like my studio was on the bottom and I lived upstairs. 
It was amazing. Like, and I, my rent was just dirt cheap. It was great. Everything about it was great. I had a console in there. If you came into the bottom, like you thought like it was a professional recording studio. And then I just lived upstairs. I had this neighbor and he was, he, when I would do drums, he was just not stoked at all. So I came up with this way of, I had a friend help me build these things. They were baffles. And they were like, if you can imagine plywood, and then on the other side of the plywood would be foam rubber. And then I put bolts on on the four corners of all my windows. So essentially, I just bolted these things mm. up against the windows to make the place. It was like from the inside, it looked like I was, make, I, I was making meth or something in there. Like it was ridiculous. But yeah, it was hurricane. You hurricane showed exactly exactly but they had foam rubber so they so in my mind the sound wouldn't get out and i remember like building them and then and then setting them up and then setting the drums up and then going outside and then like i didn't want to admit at the time but they like only helped maybe like 20 percent. like it was it was still you can hear it but they helped a little bit for me to do drums i would have to literally board up the windows in that in that studio in my place and then it's no yeah, way dude. to live, man. Right. So, and then sometimes I would just leave it boarded. I'd be like, I have a session next week, so I'm just going to leave it boarded up. And then, like, I would have no windows. So, for me to find another drum room that I can go set up, just be like, all right, man, I'm out. And then, you know, it was so worth it. So, once I started doing that, I kind of got into, I was like, okay, yeah, I don't. And then now I don't track much live, you know, live instrumentation. And not to say like I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I have plans maybe the, the next recording to to track a lot more live drums and cut those up because that's something I do a lot. So, yeah, the, but I, I have no problem working. Everything I track here, I mostly do vocals here and guitars if I need to, horns yeah. and stuff. And all, all of that, I have a great chain and a cool place to record. When we say horns, is that live horn, recording live horns or sample oh, yeah. stuff? Do, that... no, live horns, my favorite, my favorite thing. Yeah, Barry Sax is like my favorite instrument of all time to record. I just love everything about it. That's so awesome. I have this, like, I make this really dark music. um, It's the stuff I love making, but then like a lot of the stuff I do for, for for my day, I call my day music, but I have this kind of like quirky soul type of thing that I do often. And yeah, there's nothing that takes the place of actual horns. So I, I got a couple guys that I just bring in and we just bust it out. Yeah. So I record a lot of horns. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, man. The music that you're doing now, there's two sides, I guess. You have what you call your day music. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about what, the, what yeah, that I just, entails? Like I, what? Um, I essentially just write music that gets pitched to film and TV, mm-hmm. ads, video games, trailers and stuff. So I get, I write with a lot of... Um, people, vocalists, other artists, other producers, and we just kind of, you know, cater music that kind of swings a certain direction, um, whether it's for a trailer or for an ad or something, we just kind of make it either quirky or dark or, or you know, um, a certain direction. So that's what I mostly do. And that's mo- where most of my income comes from is music like that. And again, it's all starts with a reference. It's like, hey, we're trying to we need a song that's you know, happy, but energetic and it's about female empowerment. So yeah, that kind of thing. And then, you know, we, we sit in here and we write it and then I, I finish it up. And if I need to hire, uh, you know, people, horn players or string players, we just do that. And then I finish it up relatively quick and 
and then yeah get it out and then hopefully you know sometime later it'll just end up in in something a commercial or or promo or something so with that process on the day gig air quote doing that mm -hmm. as it rolls over into a lot of the music that folks hear under the snakes of russia moniker mm -hmm. you how long have you been an ableton user so now it's been like i want to say it's close to five years now four or five years mm -hmm. that, yeah five was say. that coming right out of a pro tools word or were you were you composing in a musical and you can you can read between the lines on what i just said but were, or were you using more of a yeah. musical daw to kind of i was using no i was using using pro tools i was on reason for a while back in the day i made a lot of records on reason mm -hmm. a lot of the electronic stuff i did was on reason but i've always I, I always bounced stuff over to pro tools like i took my reason stems and put them into pro tools sure, yeah. mixed mixed in pro tools and when i used ableton i got ableton for a very specific project um specifically the push because i i love the idea about chopping up breaks and like with mm -hmm. one button was like oh my god so i did for that project and i was just like I took to it like instantly and, and I've literally used it on everything since. And about maybe nine months ago, I, I moved over to mixing in Ableton. And um, so before that, yeah, I was using Pro Tools mostly. So you made the, you literally went from mixing in Pro Tools for a, over a decade mm -hmm. to mixing in live. Yeah. That just, was that just like a light bulb moment? Was it like a grueling sort of uh, comparison <laughs> thing or was it just sort of like, no, man, this is just works. It was like writing, writing and composition, sound design and any of that stuff in live compared to Pro Tools for me, for my workflow, for mm -hmm. the kind of work I'm doing was just like, it's a no brainer for me. Um, recording audio, like if I'm recording vocals, I'll still record vocals in Pro Tools just because I'm really fast and I, and I comp playlists and all that. And then for a while, I would take my Ableton stems because I had the vocals. I would bring all my Ableton stems over to Pro Tools and then mix in Pro Tools. But a couple, like I said, nine months ago, I just flipped it and I brought all my vocal stems yeah. into Ableton. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's no going back. I love it. Wow. Yeah. It does live work its way. I, I guess what I want to ask is: is are there other situations where you're completely dawless in your songwriting projects? Um. Sometimes when I'm when I turn and and write some stuff on like the modular rig, I mean Ableton is always running or or back in the day Pro Tools it's always running to document because I'm like the kind of dude like like I never like jamming you know like when I when I like to get in the room and just jam it's like let's make a let's make something let's make a song let's write something so so I, I kind of equate it like that like I always it, like to. I'll play for like, like if I get a new piece of gear, a new plugin or a new sample library, I'll play for like 10 minutes and then stumble on something and then make a track with mm -hmm. it. Cause that's just the way I want to make, like, I don't, I don't like to just play just, I mean, it's fun, right? I mean, we all love to just play with a new instrument cause it's fun, of course, but I quickly turn that into making a song or an idea right. or a sketch or a loop and put it in a folder. So songwriting is the core. It sounds like it's been the core of your being yeah since you were in high school writing songs with your buddies and starting to think about yeah. bands you yeah just, i think so like i, I want to so. write it we could jam all day on this on this nirvana yeah. cover but i really want to write and now exactly exactly it's a huge part of your 
daily yeah. and nightly thing. So exactly, exactly. It's interesting. What that, what like the stuff I do, that music I do, you know, for my for my day job. The one thing that is super valuable that it taught me is just working fast, like working fast, mm-hmm. committing, and finishing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, really helped me do that. And that's a it's a it's a great skill to to pick up and and I can yeah. I can attribute it all to that. Just let's get it, let's do this, let's make this, and you know, because a lot of the stuff needs to be done so fast. You've been, I mean, that's what the early part of our conversation was. We were covering. I focused on a little bit of it too. We backtracked. You you started producing without really knowing you were producing. I think right, yeah. That's the take that I get. Your career, the culmination of all those hours of work, yeah was you were producing and you didn't picture yourself in the producer chair for a minute. You just, you felt more comfortable getting to the meat of the song, getting the structure, getting parts down. Yeah. And then all along the way, an interesting thing happens. You become a mixer and a recording engineer. This is all in there. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's kind of like scratching your own itch, right? It's just yeah. like we were, you know, because just being a band, it's like, well, I, I guess I can record us now because I have, you know, this recording equipment, and then who's who's going to mix it? Well, I guess I'll mix it, you know. Um, so it just kind of all came from there. I think I think a lot of it has to do with uh, if I think a big process too, if you look back in conversations with folks like yourself, is the common denominator of owning a sampler. And learning to chop things, record vocal phrases, yep. and fly those phrases in with MIDI or whatever, and manipulating audio within a sampler and slicing things, and you know, back air quote, you know, in the day, in the day right. is really it's hard to believe that like it seems like eons ago, but we were doing things in the nineties yeah. with the, with the Akai samplers and the EPS and ASR and all this stuff that this yeah. seems like. It's like God. Was that like fifty years ago or something? Dude, when it's I like, no, it wasn't. It was literally like eighteen years ago, or you know. Dude, I recently I just went back and I listened to those Fat Boy Slim singles, and because I saw some interview with him about like he's st- I guess he still has that rig or something. Maybe this interview was a couple years old, but like how he made those records back in the day with the equipment he was using. Mm-hmm. Like the guy should have been involved in the space program. Like it was insane to think about. I mean, how he was making those records and doing those chops and the and the slowdown and the, it's just insane. Um, I think about that, you know, coming from that place and just how challenging it was. I want to say, was he like a S nine fifty dude? I want to say yes. Something it was definitely like a Kai. Yeah, yeah, he was doing that. It was like him and Marley Marl and those oh, yeah. kind of cats. I even junk even Tom Holkenberg too. Like. But he was like on a whole nother level, those drops yeah. and stuff. Like, yeah. Dude, just that slow, that like the pitch downs and stuff that he was doing that right now you or I could just open Ableton and do it in like two seconds. But like back in the day, how how hard, you, even just to, to like like change the, the, the key of a sample and make a match and then the tempo and, and back in the day on an MPC, I mean, but even, but I guess the point is, is like, learning that stuff a bit on that gear that was so primitive of like having only like six seconds to sample with like but it was also limitations really complicated man absolutely man i mean yeah. i i remember yeah. making the transition from an atari 1040 and taking huge amount of money that i had saved up from recording in my janky studio and i bought an mpc 60 original one awesome great and that was a huge big step and it taught me about sam- it really taught me more about sequencing than sampling 
because my next thing was an S950. And then my oh, follow cool. that was an S1000. Then another S1000. And I just, I turned into this sampling monster where I was like figuring out all this stuff. But it was really hard to learn. Like it was. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that stuff was pretty freaking complicated. And then yeah. when you got it, it was your own little language and no one else could even enter your world really unless they were an Akai right. uh, programmer, yeah. if you will. At that point, that's really what I was doing. I was just programming for producers. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's great. That's where I got my, you know, my 10 K man. I was like just in the studios with all these really amazing songwriters and producers with my racks of gear, <laughs> making them sound good. Right. But also listening and watching and just like, you know, but when it came to those Akai's, like you were talking about the fat boy slim stuff, man, key groups and root note and stretching. <laughs> Oh yeah, dude. For me, it was it was like the sample CDs, the um, yeah, yeah. like the Big Fish Audio and yeah. the Zero G. Like I, dude, I still have all of them. Like all the like the, the yeah, the Bob the, Clear what, Mountain. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. The West Coast, the West Coast hip hop and 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 the industrial mm -hmm. sounds, dude. I had all of them. I still do. And but just like what you would have to do. Oh, that's a cool loop. And let me find that again on yeah. on my CD player, dude. It, it was work. I want to have. I want to get Doug Rogers on the podcast. The guy that owns oh, cool. East West, because I remember those days too. I remember him. It was like him and Nick Phoenix. And it oh, seemed yeah. like every yeah. week, them and Big Fish would come out with something. Spectrosonics yeah. was doing. We're doing stuff too. Oh, and shit. uh yeah yeah but it was all about maybe just stacks Dude, did you ever have that guy I, that would come to your have, studio yeah. and try to and try to like cop your cd roms man like no you ever have that no i never no they, they no thank you hey man no. how's it going hey where's uh where's your stash man i want to go through your stash <laughs> you're like get away man those yeah, are my no. that's those are my sounds those are my twisted yeah twisted textures you know, you know, yeah, dude, that one twisted. You know what the thing was, was like what you talked about when you talked about your rig and back in the day is like, like I, I was the, the, the dude, the, the dude that had the sampler, you know, cause it wasn't like everybody with a laptop could also have a sampler back then. We were, there was like, you were probably the dude. And I like, I was the, the kid in my hometown that like, you know, had, had a sampler and that could, you know, make beats or like, or like if, oh, yeah. you know, if a, if a metal band wanted to do segues in between their songs, I was the guy that could do it because I had a sampler. And so that, that was the thing too. So no, I didn't, I didn't get many, I didn't have, like, I wish I had some kind of peers at the time just to be like, you know, Hey, did, like, let's, did you get that CD ROM? But no, man, I didn't, it wasn't until I went, I went to college and, and it had, I went to this community college and we had this like really, 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 really great um, electronic music department at the time, like for the time. Where were you, where'd you, I wanted to ask you that earlier. Where'd you grow up and where was college? I grew up in, in New Jersey, um, mm -hmm. right in between Philadelphia and New York, which was a great place to grow up now that I think about it. Um, I, I was in a real hurry to get out, but um, it was great. Cause I had, I had the city, I had, I had, you know, New York city on one side. Where is that? What city is that? I was from, I'm from a town called Freehold, where actually where Springsteen is from. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was this community college called Brookdale. Um, and they had a really, at the time, a really great electronic music program. Like they had like 20 or 30 MIDI stations and um, it was, it was fantastic for what it was. So that was the appeal for me um, to stay and to go to that community college. And I did, and I took this electronic music class and um 
And that's when I started meeting other people like with a sampler. I was like, oh, this is you guys a sampler too. And that kind of blew everything open for me. And like, you know, like, oh, well, what kind of music do you dig? And, and you know, and some of those people I still talk to, like from that class, like that class kind of oh, blew wow. everything open for me, you know? That sounds like an awesome school. Yeah, all those stations set up. I, I didn't have that. What a dream that would have been. Yeah, it was, I mean, dude, it was super primitive. Like, I, I like the mo- like we would laugh now seeing those seeing all that gear and but it was it was rad man i mean recording to tape you know and just and just i I made my my final project be uh scoring something and to tape and it was super cool it was it was a good experience and it it kind of primed me for what that did is kind of just plant the seed of like yes i want to be making this kind of music and and then even though i i did rock bands for a while after that i always find a way to like put a track in in like bury a, a bass synth you know a, a, a sh101 playing the bass line just an octave below you know something like that that is an interesting segue because now i want to take all of this which culminates into your current arsenal of work how many albums do you have available like as, available like on um as snakes of russia um just singles um and then an ep so there's an ep that just came out on the 30th and then i have a bunch of singles four singles what's the so, name what's the name of the new release it's called at home alone with lions You're right how many songs are on there six wow how long, yeah. did, t- how long, how long did you work on it <sighs> man it was it was kind of the whole idea for the project was something it all happened really fast. I mean, I was spending, I was making a lot of, I finished, I finished the the bands I was doing and I was like, what's next? What do I want to do? I was helping other people make records and make songs. And, and I didn't make any music on my own for a few years. And I'm like, I need to do something. I want to do something. Hmm. And I want it to be electronic, but I don't know what that is. And it took me a really, really long time to figure what that was. And I, made a bunch of things and released some things and none none of it was sticking and then i just like i don't know nine months ago i said let me just write the stuff that i really enjoy writing which is you know beats (laughs) and and just dark sound design and you know drones and just bass (laughs) and synth and and that kind of ended up in into this stuff and so I started making these little Instagram videos, these 20, 30 second things, kind of marrying them to some um, like video stuff that kind of fit the song. Let me stop you right there. Where does the general grainy black and white noir video stuff come from? Is that like a counterpart? Is that somebody, you, is, is that you who's making those? That's me. Because a lot of times those images are really cool. Thanks, man. It's like yes. found sound, but like found video. Well, dude, if you think about it, it's just sampling, right? It's yeah. just, it's just, I'm taking, I, I find, I find the videos, some of them I shoot, um, um, some of them I, I get from, there's a couple of public domain video archives that I nice. take some of that stuff yeah. from, but all of it is, is just like either public domain or most of it. I mean, all of it's free or like stuff I shot. So I think about it like sampling, like, again, it's the whole concept of just like, I know what I want it to look like in the end. So just I get a bunch of things together and I just cram them and make something new out of it. So I think of it like sampling in a way, but, um, and then visually I've, I've always been really visually inspired like movies will always inspire me to make music and and art and photography yeah you're very um it's really been interesting talking with you about this because my takeaway 
on the on your on the craft and the application of the craft that you do musically you seem to put things in their place in order with with full knowledge of the and scope of where you want to accomplish it seems like that you know what i mean it's like yeah you from your videos and your chops to the music to like that took you right. know, it was X amount of years to like find the right place to do this kind of music, like stretching all the way back to when you were just like writing all the music for the band and or bands. Yeah. Do you have stuff over on Vimeo? I wanted to ask you that. No. You, you, so you don't have longer. Okay. So you don't have longer format. So, but I think I that one, that I have one music video so far on YouTube. It's like a proper music video. That's ah, it. But okay. just the rest is all Instagram. I want it to be yeah. that band from the showcase, though. That's the video. That's what I want. <laughs> no, dude, no. No uh, one does. Uh, yeah. The one from 1030 a.m. on a Saturday. So the <laughs> but I think that that Mary, my point, what the point I was getting at is that Instagram, whether 60 seconds or an expanded story or whatever, is how you marry those those images this just yeah. it works. It's yeah, just, it's. I don't it even. It's works. like almost without even thinking about it, because it's almost like that whole thing of just like scratching my own itch. It's like this is this is just the music I would be doing anyway. Mm -hmm. Like, and I just decided to maybe put it out into the world. And and um, it's an art thing so, because it's not you playing, turning knobs, doing shit. I mean, sometimes I guess. Yeah. But like only ruin or some of these really awesome cats that are like with their modular videos. Oh, he's great. He's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like. It, but but you're working it, you know. Yeah. Red stripe. Yeah. You know, it's like you see it, but it's them. Whereas with you, it's like, oh, here we go with a sixty second. It's going to be here it comes, man. And it's the sideways <laughs> motion. Then the weird <laughs> grain thing comes down, and then there's like a weird shape of a shadow. But yeah. the other thing that evolves around all that is what I want to, what I've noted, I wanted to ask you about. It's like what I've noticed in your catalog and all your all your ig posts of these of your sound it seems like the kick is like <laughs> such a foundation of your world like it's a boom and it starts and it just right everything starts to unfold but there's always this common thread of this deep thumpy kick thing and things surround it like glue and yeah. it carries the sort of halftime groove that you're doing that sort of black right. darkened i came yeah. up with a name oh oh tone churn like you tone you, churn you take tones and you churn them into the, and now maybe it's your thing about uh taking tape speed down yeah but there is a sound, man. I, I can promise Tone you. Churn. If you were, I'm gonna tattoo that on my neck. It's great. If you were sitting, if you were doing a, a South by panel, and then you asked that question, up like a, of, of the folks that were there, everyone would raise their hand. They're like, "Yeah, man, it's just this sound. It's like a wave that sort of comes over." Oh, cool, man. Well, thank you. That means a lot to hear. Like, it, it's 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 so bizarre to me after doing stuff for so many years that something connects with people, man. And I don't take that lightly. Like I take, like, it really, really means a lot to me. Um, especially that we can have conversations like this about it, because I certainly think like, like the process when I do stuff, when I throw stuff to tape and then slow it down and bring it back in, like, sometimes I think I'm the only person that's going to experience it. But the fact that I'm able to like talk to you about it is like mm -hmm. crazy. And that it, that it, that it does connect with somebody about it. It's really cool. 
and, and I love it. It would be really cool at some point uh, down the road, maybe do sort of an introspective journey, like a rig breakdown or something we could Ooh, do like yeah. a video version, you know, eventually I'll, I'll turn some of this stuff into video, I think. Yeah. Or maybe we'll do it on synth Lords or something, but just cool. a way to get sort of an idea of the process. As a matter of fact, what would be cool if you're cool with it is to take maybe a song or two and just break down maybe even off the new record sure. or yeah, and, and sort of break. Cause I, there's some things I actually want to ask you about. I can't figure out if it's like tape, like slowing half speed or if it's modular or if it's like a yeah you 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 struck a nerve when you mentioned the sh101 playing bass parts it's like okay is that sh101 going through some sort of granulizer or distortion octave pedal or what like it's already bass but how does it get more snakes of russia bass because there is that yeah there's yeah, like yeah. tones Obviously, you can't decipher those tones when you hear yourself in a two-track version on Instagram. But if you're a production nut like myself or someone right. who gravitates towards your music, you listen and you're like, what in the, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. But without being like trailerish or or sure. like you borrowed it from a library of sounds that are supposed to be that, you can tell that organically and grassroots wise you made that shit yeah cool i'm glad it, I'm glad it comes across that i way. think that's yeah. the connection rod that you've made over these last few months with your music on ig just ig alone awesome. like and folks that yeah. i talk to where i bring your name up and yeah sure it's like dark dungeon oh you could put a billion <laughs> words on it but at the end of the day what i hear is a lot of your day job in there too, which is the melodic, yeah. the melodic sensibilities and the structure that I love yeah. that I grew up refining and learning and trying to do in my music too, which is just, I just want to play Like Lisa Belladonna and I had a great conversation about that. At the end of the day, we just want to play and arrange yeah. in our head, left hand, right hand, opposing part, just thinking about sound and song structure yeah. at the same time. So I hear that in your music yeah. too, which I think is really cool. So yeah, if let's let's listen to a couple of tracks, and um, I'd love to hear what influenced some of those sounds and how you got. Yeah, them. I mean, pretty cool. The sh the short answer to all that is like there's always some extra processing going on, um, and I'm not a purist with gear. Like I, I use hardware synths, soft synths, modular synths, um, you know, everything, analog, digital, like I'm definitely not a purist, but there's always a sense of like, I have, I have a, an aesthetic that I would like to think that, you know, everything is being run through and those have some characteristics, but the main characteristic to me is that it's just not perfect. You know, like I love the sound of two oscillators, like detuning them from one another, mm -hmm. like, yeah. and, and, and tape the, the wow and flutter that tape provides. And, and, you know, that is what I'm going for. And like, it's why I'm like, I would be awful at carpentry, <laughs> but good, but like, okay at this because things and certain things need to be exact. Right. And I'm not, I'm not into music like that, you know, for the music I make, you know, I don't mm -hmm. want stuff to sound absolutely perfect. I want to give it character and I want things yeah. to sound interesting and that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of my approach and I'm glad it translates. Yeah. You embrace dissonance, but you also explore ways to get things thicker and, yeah, it, 
kind of that like an Atticus Ross, Trent Reznor thing. That, you oh, know, yeah, you can yeah. you know with there whether it's you know current scoring or or just that their process is hearing things, exploring directions that sound can take against one another. Yeah, in the sound spectrum. Exactly, that's a great way to put it. I love that. And that's it's a really fascinating thing. Again, I guess we brought him up earlier. Mike Michael Stein and I chatted about that about there's just something so blissful about the same synth played twice. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, without stretching too far on the sound, it's even the same patch, but yeah, just, just the way just, that it works together and there's that fluttery dissonance thing that makes yeah. you... Especially like not quantizing and playing it by hand and having the, the and splitting it left and right. Yeah, it's wonderful. I love that. Yeah, yeah do you great. find yourself, I wanted to kind of... I want to. I want to really want to break some couple of these songs down. This is going to be awesome. But I, I want. To, I wanted to ask you: Do you ever go down the rabbit hole and spend like a half a Saturday or a when you're not working around the clock? Do you record direct to audio and build songs, or do you keep yourself in sort of a grid sequencer life, production life? You know, production works work. work yeah, that's style. a great question. I. I usually record everything. It's very interesting you're mentioning this because only recently have I have I started not being concerned. Like the idea of of like hit re, hitting record and then just like jamming on or, or playing with a synth and then having to go back and pick out the good parts is like man, I don't like so I've never been into working that way. I've more been into the way of, of kind of messing around. If I come up with something cool, then I'll hit record and then I'll stop just so I have that piece because I've never been really disciplined about going back into a recording and chopping out all the good bits. I'm, you know, a recording that's like 45 minutes long. Mm -hmm. I just, but lately I've been experimenting with that kind of thing, getting off the grid, letting stuff run, mm -hmm. um, because I find that it adds, if you repeat the same four bars over and over again, your music is going to have a certain feel to it. And that's great for some styles of music. But for what I'm going for, I don't want that. So lately, I have just been hit record, no grid. Here's three minutes of me manually changing a filter or three minutes of me slightly changing some parameter that'll just give stuff life so the probably the answer to your question is little by little i've been i've been working that in just because i think it adds so much life to a recording to not be on a four bar grid all the time if you had to break it down on a, on the daily mm -hmm. what and that this is 24 hours you got your you got your sync license uh composition work you got mm -hmm. your personal music side of work or side of of output how much is modular as a whole because you have a, a wonderful modular system mm -hmm. how much of that percentage wise is in your in your process is that more of a additional tracking or is it something that's like i'm starting with this i'm turning this particular cyclone i'm starting with this or is it 80 20 is it 60 40 is it it's it's more like Again, if I'm if I'm on it and come up with a cool patch and a cool sound, I'm, I'm recording that all the time. And then sometimes I'll take a piece of that and chop it up, and that'll become a track. Um, it's usually that way. It's yeah. it's never. 
I have this track and I need and I need to come up with a sequence to lay on top of it. It's usually the the, the nucleus of something, and from a sound design point of view, for me anyway, that's the way you know. How much? How much? Uh, how much of your drum sound? across the board, especially for your Snakes of Russia stuff. How much of that comes from a modular? The kick, a lot of the kicks, but what I'll do for that is I'll, I'll set up a certain module and then just hit that. I will do this way, I'll hit record and then tweak and get like, I don't know, 15 kicks out of that and then chop those up, put them in a folder. But if I'm working on some drums, I'll always, it's always coming from a folder. It's always coming from, um, it's not, I don't fire up the modular to make a kick to use that at that moment. It's always like I make, make a bunch at one time. I do like a session and make a bunch of kicks. Yeah. And then it's always layered. Like every every drum is layered with like four other drums. And that's a combination of like a modular kick, Foley, um, a kick from a vinyl record, a yeah. kick from like a, you know, something that doesn't belong always mixed with something. It's an interesting, and I don't want to label this or even try to, even act like I even know what this is, but thinking about listening to your music and sort of breaking stuff down and analyzing mm -hmm. it, do you concentrate more on the kick and the backbeat and ancillary sounds than the hi-hat? Always, dude, always. Right? Is it's, it? It's funny you pick up on that, yeah. Okay, because I'm like... Yeah, I, absolutely. There is, there's, a, there's, there's certainly pattern-oriented approaches to your songs, but there's this interesting absence yeah, in the spectrum, it, it's not absent, but just this in the spectrum of where hi hats should be, whether that's noise or samples or high pass filter of mo, whatever the thing is. Like, really interesting. It's like, man, sometimes I listen to your stuff, I'm like, I could mix, remix sure. the shit out of this, man. I'll tell you why I think that is, is because for the when I told you, I had the hardest time trying to figure out where I wanted to land within the scope of electronic music. Um, just the kick, right? The sound and the characteristics, the placement, the amount of kicks will literally define the subgenre of music. Like you can take every other element from that song and you can add one more kick and shift everything and it will become a completely different style of music. So for me, the longest time I was like, what do the what are the drums doing in this music? And I went through countless trial and error projects and projects of, of what are the drums doing? And then it was... Man, the hi-hats, to me, my ears, define even more so in some ways. Like, you know, you hear certain, oh, that's a trap song because of the hats. Oh, that's a house song, right? So it's like, and that, you know, that's a deep house song, right? There, That's a tech house song. So it's, so it's like, it's so defining. So I think it's just, for me, it's like, I don't want to put them in there because I don't want to paint it into this corner. And, and now it's just like, I just would rather put some other kind of rhythmic element in there. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I'll just bring them in in the last hook or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it does sound like but a that, trap song. You know, it's something. interesting how we circle back to something I was asking you about, you know, earlier in the conversation. It's like it so much of what you're doing centers around the kick. It really does. Because now you're talking yeah, about man. three to four different sounds and a kick and some Foley and a dumpster lid slamming and a whatever it is that you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Then you've got this whole, which, which actually I think a lot of this will come to light when we when we do some track breakdowns on a couple of your songs yeah. to wrap up the episode. I think that's going to be awesome. Yeah, and for you sure. Can, I love you to can kind of walk us through that. So yeah, yeah, man. Let's take a let's listen to this first track, and and uh, I got questions. All right. So this track is this from the new record? 
Yeah, this is from the new record. So this is, uh, what's the name of this? This is called Fiction Ears. So that backward stuff's got like, it reminds me of the, the remember the movie Gravity a few years ago? Yeah. I don't, I can't. Sandra the, Bullock? The, yeah. But the composer, I can't remember his name, but uh, like heavy reverse yeah. stuff. That's actually, so that sound is um, some clarinets to um, to cassette tape, <laughs> slowed down on the cassette mm -hmm. deck and then back into Ableton. Wow. So it sounds like I'm hearing some nice shaker percussion on this. Is that, do you record that stuff live or is that like sample stuff that you manipulate? Both, either or. Um, there's a really cool feature in Ableton when you get loops and put it on the transient and you could you could kind of like minimize the transient so sometimes i'll take shakers with a lot of um, a lot of transient and just crush it so it's like one or two percent mm -hmm. so i get what feels like hi-hats when it's actually a very thick thick loop so i think that's what i did there yeah but sometimes right. i'll just play a shaker too just to give it a human element you're talking about in the warping uh parameter yep. where you can do like yeah, 16 Ace. Yep. Yeah, it kind of gets it. Yeah, I just it. turned it to transient yeah. and then the and then the arrow, the facing right arrow. And yeah, then so put there's it down those to like 1 or 2%. There's those melodic things I love, man. It's it's like strings but it's pads. It's like lead pads but through like a sub-octave distortion mutator thing. Like, yeah, that's wavetable. That's Ableton wavetable right oh, there. Oh, it is. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, do you typically root yourself in in a minor minor key minor scale I mean, a lot or almost yeah almost always do you branch almost out always. do you branch out into into other other scales you do you experiment with, this with things stuff, with this stuff not really just because I'm I just love you know I love the way these keys sound um, but. There's a track on the record, on, on the EP, the last one, that sounds a little bit more hopeful. Right. So, every once in I mean, to make to create some contrast, maybe I would, but I think I'm really comfortable writing darker stuff, you know, mm -hmm. with these kind of intervals. And it just, what comes natural to me, I think. Yeah, I love, Not to say I wouldn't write stuff that's I love major, how it kicks in at the end here, was you've got this sort of backbeat syncopation kind of echo clap thing going that's awesome yeah your your music's like a whole journey man it's a, oh, thanks, it's man. a yeah, journey i mean that's what i'm that's what i'm trying to do um and struggling with like i come from like I, I like short songs, but I realize that sometimes people want to go on that journey. So the challenge is kind of writing longer stuff that, that I, you know, I don't get bored with myself. So um, it's good to hear that people are still in after three minutes because I just have this thing with writing long songs. I prefer short songs for no other reason than I'm just always been used to writing shorter songs because... But now that I'm writing, you know, stuff that feels like you said a journey, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, slowly branching what's, out into what's the four sense songs. on 
on that song fiction ears what's the synth that you use the most i know you're i know you've got a, a model d moog model d yeah the mo there's a model d bass in there okay um, yeah i guess i i hear the latter loveliness something but you just i mean literally trying to go in there and identify your stuff is a it's a work study because you've just buried it like the reverb what i say you bury it in like this really interesting reverb tones too do you distort or overdrive your reverb returns as well and print that or usually, something i'm not to give away any secret sauce but i'm just just like oh no 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 i'm, I'm happy to share um usually the hardware sense the mo the, the model d or i use the, the moog siren a lot that's in there too um those are running through the space echo with a very 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 short echo so it's just almost like a slap back on there mm -hmm. and then that's just overdriven so it's already it's already going in pretty gnarly what's the main and then well what's the main sound on that is that like the low brass cassette that, dystopia yeah bass so clarinet? it's it's um it's clarinets um, thrown to cassette tape, pitched down in the cassette player, thrown back into Ableton. So that is the main thing that's driving the tune. Is that a Moog? It's not. It's clarinets. Oh, yeah. it's clarinets. Okay. Yeah. It's a little clarinet pattern. Just tape, man. Wow. <laughs> cassette tape, to be specific. Yeah, it's and it's just crunchy and... Dude, that's so awesome. What about... What about this? More clarinets. <laughs> no shit. What are you taking that down like two octaves or something? Yeah. Wow. In the cassette player down and then also yeah. within Ableton. What's the cassette player? Like an old Tascam one twenty two or something? It's I don't remember the number, but it's uh I have two it's a four track. Um and I've I've had I have I have two here, and like they weave in and out of being reliable. Yeah. <laughs> so you depending said on which one is working, but sometimes I don't want it to work, and there's just so much crackle, and you know. Some um, some of my fondest memories of working and getting my get my hours in back in the day was I had a Tascam two forty six. Awesome. And just cases of cassettes from those days, man, still in storage, yeah. you know. Well, let's talk about this other track. Is this from the sure. uh, new record too, Jenny? No, this is the Jenny Rocky Horror stuff. Yeah, this this is a single I released a few months ago. Yeah, m made a video for. Nice. What are some of the sense you've got going there? Like that top line, that string kind of. It's mostly, mostly a Moog, the Model D. I was playing one day. And I was messing around with um, the two bottom oscillators playing off of each other. And I just created this really gnarly rubbing that was happening with it, mm -hmm. where they were just kind of like, I was playing the same note, but it, the, the pattern I was playing, because the, the way they were oscillating, it almost felt like a pattern with two notes. So I threw that to tape and then uh, slowed that down and then back into Ableton. And I actually bounced the the before and after of it so you can kind of hear what's going on but yeah that whole pattern is just the moog model d this song's got a lot of backward stuff is that the Roland space echo doing that stuff or is that you manipulating it on or on you know on the track itself like flipping and re-recording it's, and... it's actually a lot of it isn't backwards it's just extreme extreme side chaining 
like wicked, wicked amount wow. of side chaining that's making no it. shit. Yeah, yeah. Like a crazy, like a super unhealthy amount of side chaining. Ridiculous. Wow. Okay. Now that's something I'd like to see. I would love to see a six second side chain swell, like whatever the hell you've got going on there. That's awesome. Yeah, and a lot of slow attack stuff, I, you know. So your snares, a lot of your snare stuff, it's a lot of claps. It's a lot of, um, yep. you know who does awesome claps is a uh, Mobry, Nashville drummer. His, he's got that, what's that sample collection they have? Is it that sound? Yeah, that those guys. Yeah. He, he plays, it's yeah, he plays, stuff. he pours his toboggan in the studio and he plays drum grooves and shit. Dude, dude. That, those samples are so They're great. awesome, man. <laughs> are just for a while I wouldn't tell anybody. Right, about right. Them. I would, me too. I just... <laughs> and I would sit I got to be friends with his uh assistant because I would drop yeah. them notes. I'd be like, dude, this is these are so massive sounding and uh amazing. All of that stuff is amazing. And for yeah. the longest time I got away with like not everybody like, what do you use for claps? You're like, ah, oh, just a bunch of different it's things. Funny. Yeah, I would never ever um you know, I'm sure the words out now because they're so great, but yeah, I would for a longest time I didn't tell anyone about they're all everything they make is just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, there's a little bit of those sounds, but I like to layer stuff. I like to use a lot of like hip hop samples and, sure. and stuff from vinyl. I, I, I sample, I, I'll take a Sunday and just sample my own stuff. Um, I always go and grab records like Exotica records and uh, like the weirder, the better, like all those records that say, you know, swinging 60s drums and all, all the, all those records, but especially a lot of stuff that's not drums, just like percussion mm. details. That side chain. Yeah, so that's the original Moog sample. That not the sample. That's what I played in, and that's what went to tape. And then here's the processed one. Coming back from tape, pitched up. Right. Warped. I mean, I moved the warp points and everything to kind of make it mm -hmm. where I wanted it to be, but. So the key to do it all is just like, do I ever run the Moog out into the pre and hit record? Probably not. Everything is always messed with a little bit. And that yeah. be, but that becomes, I mean, I, I figured that out. That little four bar loop just became the entire track. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, yes, I'll just sit there and I'll, and I'll noodle and I'll play. But as soon as I attach to something that's like, yeah, this is great, a track happens. You know, like I won't sit there and still play. Yeah, I'm starting to get an understanding now. You'll develop four bar eight bar yeah pieces if you will yep. and then you will construct those into full-blown arrangements yeah out of just that inspired totally or, or something like this i love that that's a moog man yeah just like treated pitched and then it just when it all comes together
That's awesome stuff, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the breakdown, man. That's great. Yeah. Happy to. I mean, you know, we love talking about we could geek out about this stuff for <laughs> days, man. Yeah. Well, we, do, we also you know, so. Yeah, it's also our love for sound design as well. Wavetable and totally. all our hardware synths and Totally. Um, we always end up somehow end up realizing we're talking about the same yeah. thing sometimes too, so. Man. But uh congrats on the new on the new release, man. That's awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you. And uh, you're going to put the band back together and support it on a tour? <laughs> I'm actually trying to figure out, uh, um, trying to figure out a way to do to do this live. I, I, there's almost like two different entities. I have this this modular performance kind of side to doing things, but to do this music, I think I needed to coming from a band kind of atmosphere. I think I need this to be loud and mm -hmm. and just live as possible so i'm kind of trying to figure out how to do that and and i i mean that was kind of coming together before um the world caved in but but now now um i'm hopefully by next year you know trying to figure out a way to do this and and make it interesting and exciting yeah, man. you know well i'm yeah. looking forward to more music and uh more conversations with you too man so it's been great right spending on. some time and yeah dude and uh for yeah any uh where can folks find your music? Uh, Bandcamp, Spotify. What What are the details uh, on all of the above? All of the above. Spotify, Bandcamp. If you go to snakesofrussia.com, it just leads to my Bandcamp. Okay, got it. Yeah, pretty much those two. But it's everywhere. Deezer, or you know, all uh, everywhere. Yeah. All right. Sounds good, man. Well, listen. Cool, dude. Uh, you stay safe, and uh, yeah, you as well, man. We'll be in touch, man. It was great talking with you. Thanks for coming Thanks, on. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, brother. All right, man. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Houston Music Podcast with Snakes of Russia. We've got some awesome episodes coming up and some wonderful conversations with Laura Escaday, Lisa Belladonna, Jordan Rudas, Dave Smith, ambient artist Rain, Brian Funk, a.k.a. Afro DJ Mac. So stay tuned and stay safe out there. I'm Houston Singletary. This episode of the Houston Music Podcast is brought to you in support by our good friends at Loughton Audio, makers of killer microphones. I use the LS-208 on all my podcasts and all my webinars, and I dig it. Check them out at Loughton Audio, L-A-U-T-E-N. And also by our friends over at Avastor, the makers of wonderful hard drives and external peripherals. And thanks to Blue Microphones for the awesome headphones and the awesome microphones. I'm Houston Singletary. Stay safe out there. We'll see you on the next episode of the Houston Music Podcast.